You're listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Well, the final topic for today is Binance. Binance, obviously, they've launched their, uh, you know, their decentralized exchange and, and they're, they become this industry titan and it's happened so quickly. So what are your kind of thoughts on Binance? Do you think that it's it's good to have, um, you know, so much power in the hands of one exchange player? What are your thoughts about them in general? Well, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's, I don't like when people talk about these monopolies and how they need to be broken up and they have too much power. And um, I think as long as there is no government enforced monopoly, then there's no barrier to entry and people can compete. You know, Binance is where it is because it's creating a, it provides a great service. And, uh, you know, there, there are other, other exchanges if you prefer different things, if you want to, to have more accountability, if you want lower fees, if you, you know, there are different choices in the marketplace. And I really don't mind that Binance has a huge amount of market share. I think that's totally fine. Um, and I think what's interesting to me about Binance is like, I'm not saying that like, oh, they're the greatest, oh, hail Binance, yeah, there's nothing wrong with them. Because it is an interesting situation. But from what I can see, they're, they're making moves towards becoming this kind of decentralized entity right like the fact that they're doing a lot of jurisdictional arbitrage they're moving different sectors all over the world depending on different laws so they're partly based here and partly based there and that is a way of them kind of kind of mitigating the um the the leverage that government can put on the institution if you're just based in china and china decides actually we're going to nationalize this well, they can't if part of it's actually based in Malta and part of it's actually based elsewhere. You know, there's less power that government has to exert pressure. So I like that they've kind of safeguarded themselves, but that's something that, you know, Apple and Google have been doing for a really long time as well. Um, but now they've just released this, uh, this decentralized exchange, which was ahead of schedule. And that's interesting as well, because I like the idea that people are moving towards more decentralized uh, environments and Binance doesn't need to do that you know they they're this giant exchange that gets a huge amount amount of business people like it they're providing a great service and yet they're not looking at okay let's just keep doing more of what we're doing to get more money they're thinking of okay what's the future going to look like where do we need to be heading mm -hmm. I think they recognize the risks of, of government mm -hmm. I think they recognize the risks of other institutional players they're trying to safeguard that and if they can get like I mean I see a lot of competing decentralized exchanges out there there are huge amounts of problems to be solved in terms of liquidity mm -hmm. uh, in terms of speed um, there are all kinds of issues uh, when you have something that's decentralized because centralization gets rid of a lot of that friction. And I think that Binance, because it is so large, it kind of, you know, if they can bring in that liquidity because they already have such a huge consumer base, uh, and if they're encouraging people to use these you know, Binance tokens even on the centralized side of things, and that helps to create the, the liquidity as well, that's a really interesting route that, um, that I'm going to be watching very closely. I like too how they've actually taken a big focus on trying to bring a, a wider array of markets in. I mean, mm. they're, they're, it, it really said a lot to me when their first fiat exchange was in Uganda, of all places. You know, oh, and, it really? Yeah, it was, and it's 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 not a big market. It's still not a big market for Binance by any means, but that was pretty cool because yeah. they could have easily said, ah, you know, I'll just just go to the EU first or something like that, and they they have got to the EU now, but and they're looking at. Um, Argentina, I think, is probably going to be one of the next ones. And the, I think another five uh, fiat uh, jurisdictions are going to roll out this year for Binance. So, 
Yeah, you're right. It, it's really interesting to see them actually delivering this stuff and, and just continue to be such an innovator in the space. And, yeah. and I look at so much what's going on in the exchange scene overall, and it's almost always a result of something that Binance is doing or has done. We look at the current IEO boom. That didn't right. start until Binance kind of started doing it again. And then every exchange within about six weeks had announced that they're going to have their own IEO platform and all this stuff. And it all started with Binance. Yeah. And so it's really interesting how they've just, they continue to be this industry leader. And that's a tough thing to do in an industry with so much innovation and so much competition. But we realized then that most of the exchanges, they're just, they're just there making money, following the program. And if mm -hmm. someone else tells them the program is changing, well, that's what they do. I think that people unnecessarily look down on successful companies as well. You have something that yeah. gets a lot of customers and provides a lot of value that people are using and they grow really large because a lot of people want to be on that platform. Suddenly you have people start to turn up their noses and say like, oh, it's too big and it's dangerous <laughs> and it's centralized. And they start to hear this rhetoric, which I completely disagree with. First of all, don't, don't hate something because it's provided value and has grown large. You know, From what I can tell, Binance isn't doing that by creating this direct line of credit with the Federal Reserve, right? Which is what JP Morgan has done, mm -hmm. which is what Citibank has. So let's not hate a company for being successful. Furthermore, let's just make a distinction between government enforcement monopolies and co companies that have just gained a lot of power, right? Because right now we're looking at companies like Facebook that have amassed a lot of power. And uh, people are talking about breaking that up and all of that and how that's all bad. But you also see what's happening with Facebook is their reputation is also going down the toilet. Far fewer people are using it. You know, mm -hmm. you look at their earnings reports every quarter that come out and they get worse and worse. Facebook is not doing well and they're self-sabotaging and, you know, it's, they're not a threat to people the way that, that people think of it. They think, oh, they're so big and they have too much control. It's like you can just stop using their product, right? And people do stop using their product and then they lose their market share. You don't need government to come in and break them up. So I think that we need to be really careful to avoid this narrative of thinking that because something's big, it's bad. When you have the government amassing the power, it's a very different situation. Government power is backed up by the use of force, which is backed up by you know putting people in jail with putting a gun at your head type thing, right? You don't want someone who can force people to do things to ever amass too much power. But then when you have private companies, I think that's a different situation as long as you don't have the force of government backing them up. You know, if they end up creating a shitty product, they'll probably go downhill unless yep. they're getting subsidized, unless they're getting pushed up by politicians, unless they're getting special favors or handouts. You know, they're probably not going to last if they're not providing good service. So I don't think it's something to necessarily be worried about <laughs> right now. It's funny, you just described so much of the economy, all these businesses that shouldn't be competitive anymore, but get subsidies, bribe politicians and all this exactly. stuff. Exactly. Well, that's, exactly. that's the great part about the crypto economy right now is that we don't have... Um, you know, a too big to fail backed by a government kind of cryptocurrency yeah, exchange, yeah. right? That would be incredibly problematic. And we take it right back to the start of our conversation. You know, those Wall Street institutions and things like this. I mean, what's what's going to happen in 10 years when we have, you know, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and Fidelity and all these guys and they make Bad, they start doing paper trading of Bitcoin, right? And they, yeah. they issue out, you know, more products than exist. And then those get called in and then they go to the government and say, oh, we're too big to fail. We've gambled massively and we lost money again. Yeah. And we need you to do this. And 
That's what we don't yeah. want to say. But like talking about this sort of decentralized nature of Binance, one more thing that I do want to mention is what's happening with Japan at the moment. So they've got their G20 summit and apparently they've written this, this um, uh, I guess you, you could call it guidance um, on cryptocurrency that they're issuing to all these, these countries. And they obviously have the privilege to set a lot of the agenda when they're hosting. And so they've set it looking at cryptocurrency saying, listen, we should all get on the same page with regulation. We should have uniform regulation across the world. And that to me is kind of scary territory because right now one of the perks of cryptocurrency is that it's across borders. You have mm -hmm. this kind of anarchy of different world powers in this balancing act that are competing with each other. And uh, it's in our best interest to let them compete because then we'll always have an option at the end of the day. If America's terrible, then you can move somewhere else and try and have better laws. But if everyone starts to get on the same page with cryptocurrency and suddenly by some miracle everyone's like, yes, let's all treat this exactly the same way, then, um, you know, it's uh, it's a little bit dangerous <laughs> to yeah. say the least. Uh, we definitely don't want countries being on the same page with cryptocurrency. We want them to compete. We, as we said, we don't want Malta to just be like, okay, New York, we'll go use your guidelines. We'll treat cryptocurrency the same way you have. So it does worry me that Japan is looking in that direction and maybe it's because they do see the threat. You know, as long as certain jurisdictions around the world accept this and support this, it can never really be killed. It's this global phenomenon for this global marketplace. So I really do see governments being backed into a corner at the moment with uh, how they're dealing with cryptocurrency and wanting to see how they can, how they can um, then fix this situation. It's interesting as well because Japan has been quite a positive player in a lot of aspects when it comes to um, obviously it's it's the home in so many ways of the you know Bitcoin markets. I mean, that's uh, one of the biggest markets for Bitcoin outside of the U.S. dollar. And interesting, of course, the U.S. dollar doesn't just account for the U.S. Right? It's the international trading instrument for uh, Bitcoin, but the yen's the second biggest market, and that's mm -hmm. very Japan specific. And right? for a but, while, the yen actually uh, was ahead of the U.S. Uh, U.S. dollar. You know, that was quite incredible when that happened. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've seen Japan kind of trying to go with a route of like we want to enable the best of the cryptocurrency industry will not will try to avoid the worst of it and it's a really tricky situation again and it i guess we just have to wait and see what japan actually proposes at the g20 because if we could if they could agree on something like we're not none of us are going to ban cryptocurrency that would generally be a positive thing right but again it's just that's not what it's going to be Let's no, keep it's it real. Not. It's all going to be about KYC and AML and compliance to regulations and all this stuff. And it starts becoming a bit dirty at that point. Yeah. And it's, if you start, I mean, you're you were talking before about sanctions and about how the US government is forcing different countries like Japan um, say, listen, you have to buy oil from us or you have to use US dollar or all of these things. And if you don't, then if you buy from Iran, then you're going to get sanctioned. And these are the types of things that happen with governments bullying each other and saying, you have to buy by these rules or you know we're going to hurt you economically and america has a huge amount of leverage um with with countries all over the world so i do worry about the potential outcome of them using that leverage to the detriment of cryptocurrency that being said i don't see the u.s government as being this institution like it's not a single entity right it's made up of all kinds of different government departments that want to cr treat cryptocurrency a whole bunch of different ways 
there are a bunch of self-interested individuals in all of those departments. Some of them are probably involved in cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. We know Ben Lorsky is. He created the bit license. Then that wonderful revolving door of cronyism, he just jumped straight onto the board of Ripple, right? So there are definitely self-interested people uh, out there. And I think one, as long as you have that sort of balancing act, then maybe not too much damage is going to be created the same way that we couldn't get a, the Fed audited, you know, because mm. you had Barney Frank and you had these people who very much in their self-interest not to have that happen, who are lobbying against audits and that sort of thing. So I think that being said, like it just kind of is a testament to the robustness of cryptocurrency in that it really does play. It's not just about the tech, it's about this kind of game theory as well. And there are all of these individual incentives that come into play that make this robust system. So that makes me really bullish about it, you know, uh, about its longevity and just always seeing a use case for something that can't be controlled by mm -hmm. any single individual. And it's powerful. It's powerful. When you actually start to see it, see it work in real life, when you start to see countries actually, you know, who are supposed to be cut out of the international financial system using this kind of technology. When you see individual players who are using this technology, when you see yeah. lifelines opened up to like Venezuela, for example, and that's that's amazing because the, the sanctions just keep getting tougher and life just keeps getting harder. And look, let's keep it real. It's not that the entire country of Venezuela, all the citizens have access to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but there's a niche. Yeah. And that niche is powerful. And that niche proves a very interesting point, a point that will only become more salient for more countries as we do see this kind of financial tyranny continue to reign across the globe. Cryptocurrency will be there as this kind of shining beacon of hope for all these these people out there. Yeah, for sure. We can we can hope and dream, can't we? Uh, but I definitely am glad it exists because there's so many more uh, possibilities now that we ever had before. Like I often say, I think this is the biggest step towards freedom we've taken in the last hundred years. I think that this is huge. This is paradigm shifting. No one's talking about it because they don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit the power that decentralized technologies have. But when you have things that don't need people's permission in order to function because they can function in a decentralized manner all over the globe. That's real power right there. No mm -hmm. one's really talking about it. Governments don't want to admit that they don't need to grant permission anymore, that people can do things outside of their jurisdiction. But that's the world that we're moving towards. And I think that the sooner we accept that, the sooner we can figure out a good reaction to that, you know, make better choices than pretending that we still have some semblance of control. That's it. You know, you know, someone who I think really understands this is Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF. And it, it's, it's so bad because she's working for the bad guys. But I feel like she's <laughs> this really clever and intelligent lady that actually gets it, you know. Mm. But she's like, I get it. But we need to, you know, do but something I about don't, it. <laughs> don't look behind the curtain, guys. Look over here. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this has been a super, super interesting chat. Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking about cryptocurrencies. It's always a great time. Thank you so much. the video version of this episode, please visit Naomi Brockwell TV on YouTube, BitChute or Library.io. A huge thank you to my Bitbacker and Patreon supporters. And thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. I'm a Bitcoin staring, I'm staring the status quo. Got that crypto going at that foul to flow. In the algorithm, I'm gonna get him a deal.